Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 12, the high school hues. Get it? Hmm, like the high school blues, uh, which we're assuming is a thing. Uh, yeah, we're... <laughs> or at least for the characters this week, it definitely is. Um, yeah, so we get to uh, relive high school in a time that we did not go to high school this week, and it was quite the experience. Definitely. I remember uh, when I went to high school in the 80s, uh, my hair was 10 times bigger than it was now, and um, I didn't know what YouTube was. So a very different time, but a very interesting time, and definitely lends a distinct flavor to John Hughes movies that I think has made them last in the minds of of pop culture because that's the generation that grew up with it that's um in leadership positions right now they're at that age yeah so just to clarify this week we are talking about um three films directed by john hughes who did not direct nearly as many films as he wrote on imdb he has just to put everything in perspective he has 47 writing credits and eight directing credits. Um, but he did write all the films that uh, he directed, uh, which are also some very iconic films, um, like the ones that we'll be talking about today, which are 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right, three very iconic movies that I think if you if you brought up most people would uh, would recognize on the spot and also three movies that get referenced all the time in in modern culture and modern media yeah they've definitely ingrained themselves into the culture at this point right and they're all they're all produced and uh made in this very short time sprite time frame um 1984 1985 and 1986 respectively they're all made within you know the same 3 years so but we also see this really interesting arc in terms of John Hughes' skills as a director and a filmmaker throughout them. So it'll be an interesting look this week to see such a steep grade in film quality across three yeah. movies. Yeah, and just to point out, even though these are made each one year apart, like we said, they were released 1984, 85, and 86, they're not actually back-to-back. So Weird Science is actually released between The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, so we're almost back-to-back, but not quite. He did squeeze one more in between, so it's not like he went from one to the other. There was one more film of experience between Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller. All right, yeah, so let's just jump right into 16 Candles. Exactly. The 1984 film and the first we're going to talk about today. Uh, just a quick little uh, summary of what we're talking about here. It covers the story of Molly Ringwald's character, the second oldest child in the family, uh, named Samantha, but she goes by Sam in the movie. And it kind of documents uh, her birthday, her 16th birthday, and the fact that everybody in her family has forgotten it. Everybody. And there's, there's a few other characters in there. There's a uh, nerdy dude played by Anthony and Michael Hall, which was his signature back then. Um, and there's the guy she's into, Jake, 
Uh, her, there's her older sister who's getting married. That's kind of the main drama in the family. Uh, but it kind of deals with what happens when a family just totally forgets to remember their daughter's birthday. Yeah, and just to clarify, they, they didn't totally just forget. There's also a lot of stuff going on with the family on this particular day that we're, that we're walking through with Sam. Um, her older sister is getting married, so they have two sets of grandparents in the house, and an exchange student who is living with one of the grandparents is also with them. Um, so it's all this wedding day preparation, and in the midst of the this uh, big family chaos, uh, her birthday kind of gets lost, and she feels like no one's paying attention to her. Right, right. And, you know, and, and uh, I think this is an apt comparison because John Hughes also wrote it, but... It was also a very crazy setup in, in Home Alone with trying to navigate three branches of the family going out on a vacation, um, you know, 20 plus people. But there's still something to be said about there not being an excuse for forgetting your child, whether that be actually leaving them in another city or uh, their their birthday altogether. So Yeah, and, and with this birthday, it's a pretty important one, especially... Um, in a girl's life is your sweet 16 and she had all these dreams for it and and um was really looking forward to this birthday and then it totally got forgotten and was not the special occasion that she'd been dreaming of yeah and especially in 1980s america when at least when we think in media terms you know suburban culture was at its height um or at least a, a very distinct 1980s suburban culture existed and and within that you know the the sweet 16 was a super big deal i can't even imagine how many 80s sitcoms had at least one episode devoted to some sweet 16 so it, it's definitely been built up into a very big deal and, and when they forget to celebrate her 16th birthday such an important event it's almost like they forget her existence entirely it feels like this form of um emotional neglect um, that that she has to deal with, you know. What what if my parents don't uh, care about me? What if uh, the guy I like at school doesn't even think I'm alive? Um, he knows I exist, you know, and so on. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of overview of the story. Um. But I think mainly what I would like to talk about anyway are kind of the way that this film has aged, um, because there are definitely some things that for me, having seen it for the first time this week, seem really strange, um, in terms of the way they present certain things. Right, right. So again, if we're, we're, when, when we talk about one of the reasons that John Hughes movies are so memorable, we have to talk about the, the culture that's represented on screen. And that's probably the reason why they're so memorable is that um, they, 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 the eighties culture exists so prominently within them. Um, you know, it's in, kind in of terms of atmosphere thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's where this, the, the scene is almost, I, I don't want to say like the, the scene is a character, but it's, it's so prominent, like the hairstyles and the, the costume design and the posters you see on walls um, like even just looking at Sam's room, which is one of the first things you see in the film, it's so 80s, 
just looking at the posters covered in her walls. Um, so we're looking at a, a different cultural time frame uh, where making fun of a Chinese character was way more acceptable um, than it is yeah, today. And it's that's probably the big one. That's, so that's like the big one. It is, and it is cringeworthy to watch. Um, yeah, just because it's so blatant, it's not like a a one off kind of um, a joke. But there's the uh, this exchange student who is a pretty consistent supporting character throughout the film. First of all, his name is uh, Long Duck Dong, which is, oh, is um, the butt of endless jokes. Yeah, constantly referred to just to keep bringing it up. And then uh, the other element, which is going to go past this, but this is the worst use of it, is sound cues. Um, In the film, several characters are identified before they're even seen on screen by some kind of sound effect uh, that John Hughes likes to associate with them. And uh, Long Duck Dong's sound effect is a gong. Uh, So we just hear every time we're about to see him and it's just in today's day and age like we we understand you know including minorities and and other ethnicities and stuff into our films but you can't do it in that way where the entire point of this character is to make um jokes about chinese people yeah yeah he's he's like this wild over-the-top um party animal who I feel like is almost there in some scenes just so they could add a silly Kong effect. Um, right, which is, I mean, that's name. fine as a, as, a, as a character choice, but all these little extra things that are literally just playing on his race are not any way that would be acceptable to pull off comedy nowadays, and it's not funny anymore. It's definitely aged in a way that makes it more difficult to watch than funny. Yeah, and that's one of the... Um, most interesting things I, uh, I think about this movie is that those jokes probably killed in 1984, but I, I wasn't alive in 1984. I don't have that experience. So when I watch it now, like when I was watching it this week, I was just like physically wincing, uh, whenever like that gong, gong sound effect would sound. And so I, I've completely lost out on uh, any other viewpoint of this film. And I'm not saying that it's okay to make fun of um, a character based on the race. In fact, we're saying the opposite, that you shouldn't do that. But it is interesting to consider that this was so funny when it came out. And uh, it, obviously, it's still a super popular movie for a reason, um, especially amongst you know our parents' generation. The, the generation that was young in the 80s. Yeah, there was actually another um, race comment which was much more fleeting, I guess, at the very beginning. Um, and I don't remember exactly how it went, but it was something about uh, someone going out with some guy and they were like, oh, is he black? And they're like, oh, no. Oh, okay. And it was just like, oh, whoa, yeah. Whoa, we can't... <laughs> You can't really do that. It was so blatant too. I was, yeah, I was. Uh, that was the. That was really early in the film. I was kind of taken aback by that, and by kind yeah. of, I mean very. Right. It's just one of these little, and these are just little things sprinkled throughout the uh, 
throughout the film that I think people who look back on the film fondly don't even think about. They think about the really sweet moments because there are very sweet moments and there's um, a nice coming of age and romantic theme underneath it all. Uh, but it's just interesting to see the way that comedy has changed and the way that um, presentation of humor can be done. Right. And you're, you're right because it's kind of a shame that it's so distracting uh, because there's other really interesting aspects of the film. I mean, just look at the main character, uh, Sam, Molly Ringwald's character, um, can kind of be viewed from the standpoint of this is dissecting the experience of what it what it meant to be a teenage girl in 1980s suburban America and all of the pressures that are associated with that and all of the pressures that are associated with being feminine and uh, become going from being a girl to a woman and uh, what the culture expects of her, like her friends and her family and what she expects from herself and how does she reconcile that over the course of the film, which is really interesting. And uh, I think a worthwhile thing to look at on top of all of those really sweet moments. Um, but sometimes I just got taken out of the movie by a gong sound effect that made me wince. Yeah. And there, there are other times that the, the, the sound cue technique is used, which aren't as offensive, but they also, weren't as funny to me anyway um so for example yeah they're just kind of it's it's just not the way that that kind of comedy is done nowadays unless it's being done in a uh kind of sarcastic way um like making fun of films like this one who actually use it as their their punchline so for example there's there's a sound cue when uh, at the beginning of the film, Sam goes up to her room and finds her grandparents have moved into her room because that's where they're staying. Uh, and But they're like getting dressed and everything. So they're like um, in their underclothes and we just hear the Twilight Zone sound effects going on. Like they're aliens from another planet who have invaded her room kind of a thing. Um, and then uh, there's the sound effect for Anthony Michael Hall's character, um, what was that sound effect? Oh, that was uh, that was the Dragnet intro. That was the Dragnet theme, which, if you think about it, is pretty appropriate because he thinks he's a... Or at least he's trying to act like he's a super cool badass, but he's not. Uh, which, you know, if you know what Dragnet is about, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, so it's like every time we're about to see Anthony Michael Hall's character, who's kind of this... Um, you know, he's the stereotypical nerd and he's um, following Sam around because he wants to score with her or whatever to impress his friends. Um, and she's obviously not interested at all. So he's so he kind of feels like this um, kind of stalkery character, but he doesn't seem that creepy just because he's so awkward. Um, so every time we're about to see him, we hear dun, 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 dun. And then we cut to like a close up of his face. Duh! And so it's just this, uh, I mean, it's kind of funny once, but after we do it a couple times, it's like, okay, we get it. He's annoying her. Yeah. 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 You're right. I mean, he's, he, he is, um, I think if it was anybody besides Anthony Michael Hall, it would be really creepy, but he just played so many, you know, as part of the Brat Pack, he just played so many, played so many nerds in the eighties 
um, that he was just kind of viewed as toothless, uh, you know, without threat, I guess. But it's it's an interesting use of sound effects, and it's not something that um, I think John Hughes gave up on. He was very big on on sound effects, especially later in uh, Ferris Bueller. But he got way better at using them and, yeah, and learning the- how to use them in like this non obtrusive way where it doesn't take you out of the film but it kind of helps you enjoy the film more right the more sparingly you use it the more effective it is each time and we'll we'll get into that more when we get to uh ferris bueller um but let's move on and talk about things that really do work with this film because i think that the the themes are and we've already been touching on them some but the themes are very very sweet I guess, um, in, in the, uh, the arc of Sam from kind of trying to deal with this, uh, isolation that she feels, you know, from the other people at her school and the boy that she likes and her family forgetting about her to at a point kind of accepting these things through strangely through the help of Anthony Michael Hall's character um, with some really nice heart to heart moments there. Um, and then eventually just being, becoming comfortable with herself and the more comfortable she gets, the more, um, she actually builds a relationship with Anthony Michael Hall's character and, uh, gets the boy in the end. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like so many people, I don't think it's really spoiling too much. Oh no, it's Um, a romantic comedy. They end up, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Except the, Except the thing I like about this movie is that it's not told in in tandem between the guy and the girl who end up together, but rather between uh, the girl who's after the guy and the main character and kind of like a side character uh, in Anthony Michael Hall, who's kind of also undergoing those same external pressures, the same external expectations that uh, Molly Ringwald is, maybe to a lesser degree. Definitely too less well, degree, just, actually. But like his yeah, friends he deals with it in a different way. In a very different way. His friends think he's... Um, or the he bomb. wants his friends to think he's cooler than he is. Yeah. Um, and so that's why he's, he's constantly trying to come up with proof that he's slept with um, Sam, but he hasn't. So he, he just keeps trying to come up with proof for this and trying to live into it. And it only so leads that, to so trouble So that he can him. get floppy disks... That's, yeah. That was genuinely hilarious. Um, it it also kind of showed the age of this film, but in a really funny way. Now that's probably more yeah. funny than it was in 1984. Yeah, yeah. That uh, it that part did age well. What was the line? It was something like, "Do you know how much three floppy disks cost?" Yeah, it was something <laughs> like, "Do you know anything about floppy disks?" Well, they're expensive, okay? Because his his uh, friends were betting him floppy disks that he couldn't he couldn't hook up with sam or whatever um yeah yeah it's extremely high school in that that sense and again that leads to the nostalgia factor on this film and it, its placement within uh pop culture and how it's kind of stuck there it, it are those little things that characters do in high school that only get done in high school and you can see in this film like betting your friends that you can sleep with such and such person or um even the fact that the thing that kicks off the romance between molly ringwald and 
uh, Jake, the guy she's interested in, is that one of her friends handed her a um, a quote unquote sex test, which is just like a little piece of paper with questions on it that you answer and then you hand back. It's one of those little things that only get passed around in high school. Yeah. Um, and I, we didn't have uh, sex tests in high school, but we had similar little tropes like that. Yeah, those little it's just, those little um, confession things where you know kids are trying to figure out you know what do I think about these things versus what does everyone else think about them? Because if no one else thinks it's cool, then I can't think it's cool. And if someone else thinks it's cool, then I need to, you know, seem cool to them. Uh, so it's all these kind of petty things, but they seem really important when you're at that age. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're still trying to figure out the world. And that is, I mean, that's just a big theme with all of John Hughes's movies. Yeah, all these um, movies think, are going to deal with that. Yeah, and beside, beyond just the nostalgia factor and the humor and the sweet moments, I think that is the real lasting moment or lasting feature of these movies. That's the real thing that could push them from being just a good movie to being like a great movie is, is the fact that they deal with these really harsh, confusing topics in a really relatable way. Yeah, and this being um, John Hughes' first directing attempt, um, I think is a good place where we start to see a lot of these things that he's going to deal with in much more depth in his later films. Like, um, we'll see these kind of stereotypes played up more in, um, and, and the perception of stereotypes played up in The Breakfast Club and... Um, we see some of these kind of a, a little bit of the the romance the the ways that kids think about romance in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and um, like we said the the kind of portrayal of a huge family that gets so busy that they forget about one of their children is obviously taken to the extreme in Home Alone. So this is kind of one of those things like we've talked about with directors before where we see a film start to. Uh, display a lot of things that this director is going to become very famous for later on right right it's like if you watch bottle rocket like there's there's a bunch of uh wes anderson uh traits in that movie that he eventually will go on to perfect but they're not perfected quite yet which is you know that's that's a pretty standard thing for a first directorial attempt is to be expected and you know to have your first directorial attempt to be 16 candles you know which is considered such a classic movie is nothing to scoff at. That's pretty impressive. Absolutely. And so we get to see some of those uh, themes develop a bit more uh, into a much more complex plot in our next movie, The Breakfast Club. So The Breakfast Club is about a Saturday morning detention session with five students who have all found themselves in detention for one reason or another um, being kind of quote-unquote, monitored by the assistant principal of the school. Uh, but mostly, at, at some point, they end up left to their own devices, and uh, we really get to see into these characters who are more than uh, the stereotypes that they seem to be, which is how the film starts off with a little narration to because their, their assignment in detention is to write a paper on who you think you are or something like that. 
And so we kick off the film with this idea that that the principal doesn't care who they are. He sees them as these stereotypes when in reality they are much more than that. So we have the jock played by Emilio Estevez. We have um, the dork played by Anthony Michael Hall. We have the the popular girl played by Molly Ringwald. We have the uh, the criminal or the uh, punk played by Judd Nelson. And the social outcast, I guess, uh, played by Ali Sheedy. So throughout the film, we are set up with their stereotypes and we all kind of identify with what that type of person should be. And then as we go through, we get deeper and deeper and they each learn more about themselves um, and kind of pull back the layers to see that what people look like or seem to be on the outside doesn't really have any bearing on who they are in in reality. So yeah, uh, each of the characters, each of the uh, teenagers in the movie have the stereotype assigned to them. And then they also have the reality of who they are as a person, which is really complex, um, as all people are. And they, they kind of, over the course of the film, get to know these things about each other. It's kind of set up in this two-step system where each of them has two things that they don't talk about. One being their home life, their family life, and the other being the reason that they're in detention. Um, and the only person that's obvious for is Bender, the, uh, the delinquent, because he's just always in detention. In fact, there's a scene where he ends up getting detention for like the next two months or something like that because he, he keeps uh, yelling at the assistant principal who's awful by the way, but, yeah. <clears throat> but Bender serves this really important purpose in the film because he's so volatile. He's so volatile. And he, that's just kind of the persona that he's adopted is kind of this asshole, but it's definitely covering up other stuff, which we get to learn over the course of the film. But because he's so aggressive, he ends up challenging the rest of the uh, rest of the group, and you know, taking them on escapades out of the uh, out of the library where they're in detention, and um, challenging them to reveal things about themselves because he's making assumptions about each of them. He assumes that their lives are perfect and way better than his, but he doesn't really know the truth about them either. Yeah. And I think I kind of want to get into each of these characters and what they, they bring to the table. So we have, yeah, let's do um, that. so yeah, we have Judd Nelson's character, Bender, who is the kind of catalyst for a lot of things that happen throughout the film. And then the flip side of, I feel like of his character is, um, Ali Sheedy's character, whose name is Allison Reynolds. She is, kind of the outcast. She hardly talks at all throughout the film. Um, and is just kind of doing kind of awkward, strange things off in the corner by herself, dressed in all black with a hood on most of the time. Um, just trying to blend in with the shadows kind of a deal. So those are kind of the two ends of our outcast character, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then we have three characters who, are quote unquote the popular characters in different ways. Um, yeah, Molly in different Ringwald's, ways. <laughs> in, in very different ways. Molly Ringwald's character's name is Claire. She's kind of the prom queen, uh, popular with um, pretty much everyone in the school. 
um, president of a lot of social societies. Yeah, she keeps getting referred to as the princess. Right. And then on the other side of that is Emilio Estevez, who plays uh, Andrew Clark. Uh, he's the jock. He's the wrestling captain, and his dad was uh, is all into sports and stuff. So um, he's like the best of the sports people. Um, and then we have Anthony Michael Hall, who's a dork, but he's well-respected in his circles, where he's the president of the physics club and all this stuff, where the characters in, in this room that we're in don't regard him very highly at the beginning, but in his own way, we could see that he's a different kind of popular. Right. Right. And, and you're right. Each of these characters, I mean, this, this movie is, um, it's fun to watch, but it's fun to watch because you get to know these characters as they get to know each other, um, in these really deep, complex ways. Uh, so, so like when we talk about Anthony Michael, Anthony Michael Hall's character, you know, he's not just a nerd with a perfect, home life and perfect grades he's suffering under um this pressure to achieve these perfect grades and if he doesn't meet those expectations then he assumes his life is going to fall apart um and a similar thing with emilio estevez's character the jock he he has a line in the movie and i'm paraphrasing here where he talks about where he everybody's so excited about his future and his scholarships that he could get his coach his dad and so on and he, he says he just doesn't feel that involved in what's going on with him, which, you know, says a lot. He's meeting these expectations, but he has no idea what to think for himself. Yeah, and uh, Molly Ringwald's character, Claire, is facing a similar kind of pressure, not necessarily from her family, but from her friends. We get the sense that her friends dictate everything that she does, like... Um, we have another discussion later on about how she can't be seen with certain people or else it will totally ruin her her social persona. And she she has a line about how social clubs aren't the same as academic clubs because uh, kind of implying that the social clubs are much more important or they have more respect assigned to them because that's how they're seen from the people around her. So she has that same expectation that she's living up to, uh, with her peer group. And then we have Judd Nelson's character who we get the idea that his family kind of has no expectations for him. And he, he kind of gets pushed around a lot and he doesn't really know why, which leaves him confused and wanting to retaliate against the people around him. Um, well, everyone expects him to fail, right? They, they expect him to fail. They don't, they don't have any expectations for him to do anything great. Uh, so he doesn't have those expectations for himself. Um, but he kind of has this idea in his mind of what everyone else's life is. He goes on this whole charade about what Anthony Michael Hall's um, personal life is like, which is this, you know, pristine white picket fence family, um, which is him kind of falling into this, uh, mindset of of stereotyping people that ha he's been victim to for his whole life. So there's a little bit of an irony there. Right. And uh, finally, we have Ali Sheedy's character, who's a bit more mysterious than the rest of them because she doesn't talk for half the film. But um, it turns out that her parents just mostly ignore her and she doesn't know what to do with herself. She 
is just kind of left to our own devices all of the time and ends up, you know, finding weird ways to cope with that. Yeah, and she's she kind of has that lack of expectations like Judd Nelson's character, but she uh, she deals with the neglect that she feels by kind of trying to turn invisible and um, not be seen in any by anyone uh, in sort of the opposite way that uh, we saw in 16 Candles where Molly Ringwald felt invisible but wanted to be noticed. Um, we get the idea that Ali Sheedy doesn't want to be noticed because she doesn't know what to do with any kind of attention. Exactly. And just as a side note, um, total tangent here, but I am accepting it as headcanon that uh, Allison Reynolds, Ali Sheedy's character in The Breakfast Club, grew up to be Yang in Psych. Just throwing that out there. Total headcanon. I think they're the same person. But anyway, moving on. Yeah, I'm sure if... If we keep this podcast going for any length of time, our listeners will find out that we're both huge Psych fans, and Psych is a huge Breakfast Club fan, and almost all of these characters have been on the show, uh, so we kind of have that image of some of these characters in our heads. Yeah, that's kind of one of the first things we bonded over, was our shared love of uh, of Psych, and so since Psych references all these John Hughes movies, we figured we'd do a week on John Hughes movies. So there's our our little free plug of the week. Go watch Psych. <laughs> free plug of the week. We always work our way back to it. I love it. Yeah. We haven't had one for a couple of weeks, and Psych is a good one. It is. It's fantastic. Uh, but anyway, those are the complexities of these characters, um, and there's definitely a little more to each of them, um, both that I'm sure they don't mention in the film because you can only get to know someone so well in an hour and 45 minutes. Right. Um but also stuff that we're not going to mention here because we don't want to spoil it for you. But we will talk about the scene in which it is spoiled, uh, and that is the confession scene from Breakfast Club. Yeah, I don't know if that's what it's widely known as, but I think everyone knows what scene that is if you if we call it the confession scene. It's, it's the scene where all these things we've been talking about come to a head. Each of these characters have kind of had their rough patches, and now they're all sitting down, talking through their personal lives. And it's literally just a list of confessions of one character after another explaining, my life isn't what it seems like uh, on the surface. And this scene really shows how John Hughes kind of refined his um, filmmaking, I guess, from 16 Candles, because in 16 Candles, everything is very big. And of course, these are... These are kind of different genres. Uh, the Breakfast Club has comedic elements, but it's mostly considered a drama as oh, opposed sure. to Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where they definitely fall in the com- comedy genre with dramatic uh, threads throughout. Yeah. Um, but this scene is probably what classifies The Breakfast Club as the drama. And all it is is characters, all five of these characters, sitting around in a semicircle talking and we definitely see John Hughes's talent as a writer play out here because the writing and the performances carry this I don't know how long it was five or ten minute scene of no blocking just basic you know camera coverage and we're never bored or uh, or losing interest in the film or the characters for one second it's so enthralling 
yeah, you can't look away at all. And it gets in some parts of it are kind of hard to watch. Um, I mean, you know, it's a drama scene when there's crying, but it's, I mean, you're right. All of the strength comes from the writing and the performances because there's nothing else that's super duper, uh, fancy or, um, highly complex about it besides that. And we just have these characters sitting on the floor in a circle, uh, leaning against various objects, spilling their hearts out in front of us and you can't look away. Um, and that's that's kind of the culmination of the idea behind a John Hughes movie, which all deals with all of them deal with teen teenage identity in one way or another. And this is, I think, kind of a high point of revealing, um, or more accurately, a high point of subverting uh, high school stereotypes, which is what John Hughes is all about. Yeah, and uh, I kind of do want to talk about the performances, um, especially of Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, who mm -hmm. we saw much, a lot of in Sixteen Candles. And you see, even in the one year between the release of these films, how much they grew as actors, especially Anthony Michael Hall, who was funny and awkward in Sixteen Candles, but you know, kind of had this weird, um, awkward and bravado mixing in a strange way in 16 candles yeah and, and here he really gets to delve in to that dorky character he's not the he's not the brash dorky character in this film he's more reserved like he kind of knows his place in the school and then it's not on the same quote-unquote tier as um emilio estevez or molly ringwald as the the socially pop popular um kids but that that refinement and kind of toned down element and then where he comes to in this confession scene um and all of them is just it's just really brilliant and i didn't doubt any of their performances throughout this film for sure for sure and that's one of those strengths that comes from working with the same people over and over again um because you had John Hughes doing like six high school movies in the span of four years and uh, the Brat Pack backing him up. They were, they were, I mean, this, all he five kind of characters created in this the movie. Brat Pack. You know what? You're probably right. I don't know for sure, but I, 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 I think would everyone it. that's considered part of the Brat Pack, first of all, most of them are here in this film. Like this yeah. cast is most of the Brat Pack. And I think the others that are generally. Um, listed in that group also worked with John Hughes at some point for sure and they just play off each other so well they like you said they definitely matured as actors but they also had I think they also uh, the strength of those working relationships that they had built up definitely helped them uh, pull it together and I hope they never had any conflict this bad on set for real but <laughs> right uh, it's definitely interesting to watch on camera yeah, and it's cool to see how even though 16 Candles was kind of rough in patches from a uh, filmmaking and performance at some at times uh, standpoint, in The Breakfast Club, those all get smoothed out really well. Um, and it's not kind of this working relationship that comes together and just falls back into some of the issues from the last one, but they kind of helped each other get get better and more refined. Um, cause in this film, 
Like I said, there are some comedic elements, but that's not what the film hinges on. And thankfully, I don't think there were any cheesy sound cues in this film at all. Do you remember any? I don't remember any. And there might have been, but the fact that we don't remember any is a good sign. Yeah, because it was it was much more just about the characters and not about the punchlines. Um, and so whatever comedy there was, it was just based on their interactions and not anything that was kind of forced on us through the filmmaking. Exactly. It's all the strength of uh, their performances. And might I just say, the amazing set. I've always just been... I don't even know if it, it... It might not even be that great of a set, but I just really like the library in that high school. I'm extremely jealous of oh, the yeah. library in that high school. It's iconic. Um, and there might be high schools out there that are like that. Um, we kind of grew up in a town where instead of building one big high school for the city, we have, what, 12 high schools in our city now? <laughs> they probably built two more last year. I don't even know. Yeah, so we get a lot of little high schools, so our libraries were not very impressive. Yeah, and we always built out instead of up, uh, you know, because it's Texas. So we never yeah. had a second story of our library, and that, that was the thing I was most jealous of. I thought that was really cool. And um, art, artwork in the middle of the library. Yeah, big fancy statue. Um, although I wasn't completely convinced by it when it was actually rocking when Pinder was on yeah. top of it. That was that was disconcerting. Did not uh, seem very sturdy. Not at all. Um, but you know, even though it sounds uh, it sounds weird to talk about these things, those things are what make uh, a movie stick around for so long and stick in people's heads and think about their own high schools. Um, especially in the 80s. I'm sure that movie resembles 80s high schools a lot more than um, 2010 high schools. But Right, but I think even just the way that the characters interact definitely kind of brought me back to a high school um, mindset and a little bit of nostalgia for just the kind of brash and sometimes vulgar ways that uh, kids interact and like we were talking about in that time of life when you're just trying to figure out like what's acceptable and what's not and what are people expecting of me and how do I live up to that um, I don't I think that's pretty universal it's just that time of life um, regardless of the setting that it's put in yeah yeah it's definitely uh, identifiable across cultures and across time um, but it, it sticks and it does stick so well in the minds of, of uh, uh, our parents' generation because it's from their time. And they saw it when they were going through that time of their lives. I don't think I saw this movie until college, and I had um, come a little farther down the path. I'm not saying I'm all the way there, but um, definitely a little more mature than the 16-year-olds in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we've seen in 16 Candles uh, characters growing up and going through school dances and family things and in the breakfast club we see the detention side of 80s high school so let's play hooky alex yeah so uh get ready to turn around lick your palms and pretend to be sick um because now we're going to talk about ferris bueller's day off uh it is the story of a high school senior named ferris bueller aptly um and his two friends who he pulls into playing hooky with him for the day. And it also tracks the story of his principal, who is hell-bent on getting him caught and getting him expelled. 
or stuck behind for an extra year of high school. And also his sister, who is dealing with that thing that siblings deal with, where they don't like it when their uh, other siblings do something wrong and don't get in trouble. And she goes on a little adventure of her own to try to get Ferris caught as well. But they get into several different ad- antics, and they, they delve into um, um, especially the psychology of his best friend Cameron, who is just as funny as Ferris Bueller, but maybe not as fun and definitely not as confident. Yeah, so we're going to see in this film a lot of, like we're talking about, things that have started in the past two films, and uh, he kind of gets to play with them here, and once again we're back to a primarily comedic film, Uh, so some of these dramatic elements take a backseat or a B-side to just kind of, it's basically a... uh, uh, a fantasy fulfillment for every kid who's been stuck in class with a terribly boring teacher um, and just wanted to get away and get out of school for the day and do everything that they wanted and everything goes right uh, in a sense. Uh, so in that <laughs> in sense, sense, it is <laughs> right. Um, mostly right. Um, but yeah, so it's just a lot of fun to just go on the ride and then John Hughes manages to bring in some depth to this uh, funness also. Yeah, yeah. I think most of that depth comes through Cameron. Um, Ferris Bueller is definitely a very fun character to watch with his uh, fourth wall breaks and his um, just surefire confidence. Um, If you're you're into classical archetypes, he's definitely uh, the Joker character where he makes light of everything and seems to always win because he does. Uh, And it's hard not to like him, even though he's kind of almost cocky. Um, Definitely very confident. Yeah, which is totally foiled uh, with Cameron, who is almost a hypochondriac, uh, kind of suppressed, nervous character who uh, has a hard time breaking out and doing anything risky uh, because he has this fear of getting caught and fear of repercussions, um, sometimes warranted, sometimes unwarranted. And uh, he's we don't really know why he's friends with Ferris, but they're a perfect uh, pair for each other. Right. They seem to get along pretty well. And they also have uh, Sloan along for the ride. Sloan is um, the underclassman girlfriend of Ferris, who goes along on the adventure with them. Uh, And she provides a little bit of fleshing out for Ferris, but I don't think she has too big of an arc in and of herself. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of depth, but she um, kind of creates this dynamic uh, with the three characters where um, she's she's fine with going along with whatever Ferris wants to do. Uh, So in that sense, there's a two-to-one aspect in the group uh, where these exciting things Cameron gets outvoted so he gets dragged along on them Uh, and it's it's fun because Cameron is definitely the third wheel but he doesn't feel like a third wheel because they all there's no tension between the three uh, in in a sense of fighting but there's there's a sense of the the personality tension between Ferris and Cameron and how it 
grounds Ferris slightly for a time. And yeah. uh, definitely the, the major arc is helping Cameron to break out of his uh, nervous world. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and you know what? Now that I think about it, there is one thing that Ferris fails at in the film. Um, What's that? And it kind of gives this glimpse into his deeper psyche that we don't get, I think, anywhere else in the film. And that's when he asks um, Sloane to marry him right then and there on that day. Um, it feels very impulsive. Uh, and she says no. And that's not much of a spoiler. But it gives you... She doesn't. Uh, yeah, she she says no to that day. She has. She's like essentially. Yeah. Come on, be reasonable. Yeah, but you can you can tell he's he, he's probably experiencing this anxiety of I'm going off to college and my girlfriend's staying here and what is going to happen to us when that happens, which is a fair enough um, guess because the vast majority of those relationships fail. Uh, not to be pessimistic, but I've. I've seen it too many times. Um, but no comment. But it's this, <laughs> no comment. You're an exception to the rule, man. Um, it's this uh, interesting moment of relatable anxiety that we see in Ferris um, that you don't see much elsewhere in the movie. He, he does talk about early in the movie how uh, his big line is, life goes by fast, and if you don't, stop every once in a while to take a look around it'll go past you and i probably got that wrong i'm paraphrasing but it's yeah you might miss it i think (laughs) you might miss it and uh you get so so when when he does ask have that little uh interaction with sloan there you get the sense that maybe this is a a deeper problem that he's trying to escape with this day off um and I don't want to put too much to that because it's only like the slight glimpse of it that we get. Um, but but it's it's just something that kind of reminds you that even though Ferris is kind of seems like this infallible um, uh, comedy character, he does he he is a real human. Like he he's got some inner complexity to him, even though he doesn't show it. Yeah, and it's a a different side to some of the romantic elements we've seen in Sixteen Candles and The Breakfast Club, where it's more about getting into a relationship in high school. Uh, now we're seeing, okay, these two characters who are in a relationship and what does that look like going forward? So Ferris Bueller's Day Off is kind of a, uh, a an introspective look where Ferris, we get the sense that Ferris knows that things are about to change for his kind of uh, perfect world where he is loved by everybody and um, has his friends and can do whatever he wants. Um, and so he, he just wants one more day to keep that alive and just make it as memorable as possible to look back on because it's not going to be around forever. Yeah. He keeps mentioning how worried he is about, um, Cameron going off to college and he makes it seem like he's worried for Cameron's sake. Um, and maybe rightfully so because Cameron is not, uh, what one would consider, um, socially healthy <laughs> in, in regards to his interactions with his family and how much that's probably messed him up. But, um, behind it, you know, there's, there might be a little, a little hint of Ferris also being worried about going to a different school than Cameron and, uh, leaving Sloan behind at high school. Yeah. Um, 
And there are some other thematic elements that we see carry over from our other two films. For example, the uh, vice principal in The Breakfast Club, who was the main antagonist. Um, and we get a sense that John Hughes wants to criticize uh, the school administration through him. Uh, he gets kind of fleshed out more in the character of the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, who is actively searching for Ferris Bueller. He kind of has this sense that Ferris Bueller is skipping on purpose and wants to catch him in the act. And so he goes on his own journey of trying to find Ferris and and uh, get evidence that he's faking his sick day. Um, but he's just so uh, I don't, buffoonish. Can I, is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, in <laughs> the way that accurate. he goes about it and uh, and he feels kind of vindictive. Like he has to get this one up on Ferris Bueller because he's, his pride is hurt by Ferris Bueller being able to have his one free day. Um, so, so we see John Hughes kind of criticizing the way that, um, the school administration looks down on all the students as, as, uh, beneath them. Yeah. And, um, I thought it was really interesting to see that both antagonists, um, the principal and at first Ferris's sister, uh, who were both upset by Ferris dodging responsibility and not getting caught, dodge responsibility themselves in an attempt to catch Ferris. Um, yeah, at least, <laughs> yeah, but at least with the principal, um, he in a way is kind of leading out his own little fantasy in the way that Ferris Bueller is. Um, there's that line early on when his secretary, uh, tells him that he sounds like dirty Harry and then he spends the rest of the film, um, in a very comedic way, at least in a very comedic buffoonish way, um, trying to fill, live out this film noirish, uh, detective chase where he's going to catch Ferris. Um, and at the yeah, very that's end, a good point where he almost catches Ferris and we're not going to resolve that. Um, or even in the pizzeria where he thinks he catches Ferris and then it's just some other person. Uh, he delivers these catch lines and I don't remember them, but they sound very much like, um, some dirty Harry style, uh, detective delivering a gotcha line for a criminal. He just caught everybody is in in a sense, living out a fantasy, in this movie because even Cameron ends up living a fantasy that I don't think he even knew he had in standing up to his dad. Yeah. Which we never see, but we, we definitely can assume it happens. Yeah. And even, um, even without seeing the confrontation, I think we can definitely assume that it has been a fantasy of Cameron's to, uh, destroy a certain prized possession of his father's that uh, we definitely understand to be more highly valued in his father's life than even Cameron is, going back to the uh, feeling of neglect in some of our other characters, but this time it's more um, painful because it's not an accidental neglect. It's a um, kind of intentional uh, feeling of of less worth than a physical object. Um, so we're seeing those kinds of elements trickle, trickle through 
and which will continue throughout uh, John Hughes's work in the future. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. I mean, Cameron says it verbally throughout the film that he's his his dad cares about such and such rather than him um, or his mom. Even when uh, Ferris brings up the idea of marriage to Sloane, Cameron's there too, and he he chimes in and says that they shouldn't get married because his parents got married and they're unhappy. Um, and, and again, that's kind of driving home the point that not only is there this confrontation between Cameron and his dad, but Cameron's kind of an internal pessimist throughout most of the movie, and Ferris is the eternal optimist. He thinks he can do anything and that everything will work out fine in the end. Yeah, and I think that goes into another idea presented in the film, which is the difference of home lives, because uh, we definitely see or uh, understand through Cameron's dialogue that his parents have a pretty terrible relationship, whereas from what we see of Ferris's parents, they have a pretty great relationship and kind of a... Uh, you know, nice family home, their parent or their, their kids kind of, you know, bicker a little bit, but at the core, they, they all love each other. Um, so it's, it's this coming from different places and different home lives that, uh, we also got a sense of in breakfast club, which is brought back here, not to the same extent as breakfast club, but, um, but adds a nice dramatic thread throughout the, the comedy. Yeah. And, um, Interesting uh, fact, um, which you come up with a lot if you ever read the trivia on IMDb, and that's where I got this one. But the uh, the home life that Cameron has in this movie was originally supposed to be kind of the home life that uh, Claire had in Breakfast Club, but they never ended up getting into that in the script. So they just saved it and uh, rolled it over into kind of Cameron's backstory and, and took elements for it where everything... Um, where, where Ferris describes it as it's almost like living in a museum and you can't touch anything um, and so on and so forth. Huh. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and I could definitely see that. Uh, and yeah, Claire's home life and I think Ali Sheedy's character are the only home lives that we don't really delve into, but I could see how that would fit for uh, the way her character is. Yeah, they kind of dive into Elishidi's care uh, home life and that there really isn't one. Um, yeah, but, but that's kind of all we get. Yeah, yeah, you don't get a whole lot there. But but that you, you get to explore it more because Claire was... The interest from Claire's character came from the pressure that came from her social clique at school, whereas the pressure placed on Cameron is purely from his parents. Um, right. and And what has he suffered through that? Uh, and it's weird because Ferris is also putting all this pressure on on Cameron, but it's coming from in the opposite yes, it's direction. coming from Ferris's uh, desire to have fun, but it's also coming from like this source of caring about Cameron. Uh, I mean, just count the number of times that he talks about how worried he is about Cameron over the course of the film in his his fourth wall breaks. Um, it's definitely a concern on his mind. And over the course of the film, we see Cameron kind of loosen up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. To an extent. And we kind of, I think we can assume that he loosens up after the story is over even more, that this is kind of a momentous day that will in his 
you know, when he grows up, that will kind of be a genesis for him having learned to live a little bit, I guess. Oh yeah, this isn't a forgettable day. I think they uh <laughs> I think I think it's safe to assume they definitely affected the life trajectory of Cameron over the course of this movie. <laughs> yeah. In one way or another, something was changed that could just not be unchanged. Absolutely. Um Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the comedic techniques in this film and how much more uh, well used they are than in 16 Candles. Bow, bow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that's um, kind of a musical element as opposed to a sound cue. I think there's only one sound cue that I can remember from this film, and let me know if you remember another one. But... Uh, at at one point, there's a moment where the Star Wars theme song is used, and it's actually pulled off pretty well. But other than that, there's no oh, yeah. uh, recurring, you know, character uh, sound cue that's pulled from some TV show that, you know, that what You're you know right. about the TV show is what's supposed to inform us about the character. Everything else is... Yeah. Um, either diegetic sound or just musical accompaniment. Um, So we definitely see a refinement in Hughes's use of comedy and his use of editing is much more subtle still. And, and I think it makes it even funnier than in, in 16 candles. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. The museum scene has a scene that's absolutely hilarious, but it's because of how subtle it is. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I find really interesting about Ferris's character when we're talking about sound effects um, is the fact that Ferris uses audio, like in the movie, practically, he uses audio recordings and audio sound effects himself within the movie, That's too. That's true, yeah. Uh, to fool everybody into thinking he's sick. It, it, he sets up, uh, he has a little keyboard with cough sounds coded into it, which is very 80s, by the way. Yeah. Um, that he plays whenever he's on the phone with somebody to make him think that he's sick. He sets up, he rigs the doorbell to play a recording um, in case someone comes to check on him. Uh, they rig so all three so of their uh, their answering machines. Oh, they do. They rig every single answering machine. It's very sophisticated. I was fine. I found myself uh, both a little impressed and a little like worried because you know that level of thinking is either. Um, it's almost like Sherlock level manipulative. Well, I think we can we can I don't bring think back he's a sociopath, <laughs> but he's <laughs> Yeah, but I think if we're if we're still talking about ways that these things are used later on in Hughes's career, I mean it's kind of the the genesis of Home Alone, where you get everything set up to just kind of happen um as long as things happen in the exact right order that you're expecting them to you know right which is a big convenience to the plot but it's so fun to watch right um and it's you know it's part of what's so fun to watch about ferris bueller and it's definitely what's so fun to watch about um the home alone movies uh i mean no one's watching home alone 2 for the donald trump cameo i can tell you that (laughs) um but but for sure that definitely plays a big part in the film and he's he, he you can tell even though they're two years apart um, 1984 and 1986, uh, this the use of sound effects between Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Day Off is similar in that you can tell it's the same person, but 
worlds apart in quality. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, kind of this refinement and this idea that he realizes that he can get the comedy across in other ways and he doesn't have to accent it every time with the sound effect later on in post. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, with uh, carrying over from The Breakfast Club, this movie is carried by the performances. All three of our protagonists are just, you know, shining stars on screen. They're so good in their written characters that I don't know if you can make this film without these three characters and have it be as effective or oh, without, no. these, without these three actors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck make this movie. I mean, the rest of it's really good. Don't get me wrong, but their performances are ridiculous in just the most perfect way. Yeah, you can absolutely. Tell, I mean, you can tell uh, their characters have this friendship based on kind of like their shared sense of comedy, um, which is carried throughout the film. And since it's a comedy film, makes it work really well. But they play it up to such a degree that makes the characters just pop on screen. Yeah, there's, I mean, they're so entrancing, like, the even even uh Cameron Cameron's character who's uh you know almost catatonic literally at one point but almost you know figuratively throughout the whole film but he just plays it so well and you can see his internal struggle between you know needing to stay in his safe comfort zone and yet in a sense longing for uh Ferris's confidence in everything that he does that that conflict inside of his head just makes him so much fun to watch and kind of the ridiculousness of his fears um make you feel a little a little better about yourself and even Jeffrey Jones who plays the principal even though his portrayal is uh kind of over the top and um ridiculous and buffoonish like we were saying we definitely get the sense that this is how uh, Ferris sees him and sees the administration as these, you know, kind of incompetent characters. His uh, his secretary is literally, you know, sniffing glue at some point and she's just so ditzy that it's unbelievable that she would keep that job. But he's pretty much just as incompetent. Um, oh, yeah. And even though it's it's ridiculous portrayal that's how it it needs to be um it it feels a little more 16 candles ish in it's in it's uh flair um but again this is a fantasy movie and it's all from ferris's point of view so the way that we see the characters is kind of the way that ferris sees the characters oh yeah and since he sees the principal as an idiot um principal's kind of an idiot and, and yeah. we share if we, and he's he's an entertaining idiot but we we share that as as the audience and we would be completely amiss if we didn't uh dive into the fourth wall breaks in Ferris Bueller's Day Off they're a signature of the movie um and in in the past you know 4 or 5 decades they've become a signature of filmmaking in general you see them all over the place and they're done really well in this movie um they don't seem cheesy at all. They don't seem gimmicky. They just work with who the character is because he's so confident that, of course, he assumes that an audience is watching him. So um, he has to let us know what's up. 
And it kind of associates the audience with Ferris. Because like I said, it's kind of a fantasy movie. Everyone has had this dream of running away and kind of uh, tearing up the town and having everything go their way. So right from the right off the bat, like they don't try to surprise you with a fourth wall break. I think within two minutes, Ferris Bueller sits up and looks at us and is like, here's what's going on. We're going to go no, on this no, no, journey no, no. together. It's, um, it's, it's right after uh, his parents leave the room. He looks up into the camera and says, they bought it. And we're yeah, off yeah, to the I'm races. Kind of summarizing that whole opening thing where he's like, this is what's going on. I'm, I'm getting, I'm pretending to be sick. We're ah, going to gotcha. go on this adventure today. Um, but he's basically bringing the audience along for a ride and inviting them into this grand adventure that he has planned. So we're kind of the fourth member of this group with Cameron and Sloan and Ferris. Yeah. Yeah. It makes for a very intimate, um, movie, which is weird because it's a really big movie. Like, um, with the twist and shout, shout scene, which is basically a choreographed dance number right. uh, in the middle of the movie. But it still has that intimacy because our super confident, super charismatic lead will occasionally turn to the audience and include us in what's going on. Yeah, and he does that throughout the film. It's not like a, a one-off thing. And he's the only one who does it. Uh, so we're just kind of there, and he acknowledges us throughout um throughout the film yeah and it definitely makes it seem like it's ferris's world um since he's the one telling us about it it's it's a certain point of subjectivity that um is hard to reach in a lot of films unless you're talking like hardcore harry or something hardcore henry <laughs> yeah henry, henry. I, I can't remember exactly what the name of that movie was but it was t entirely shot in first person pov but this is a good way to, um, to to achieve subjectivity in and of itself. And when it's done well, like John Hughes did it in this movie, it works fantastically. Of course, it's not always done well. Right. Um, and it's just another element that we can see of uh, John Hughes refining his comedy because I, I can kind of see that if he had done this with the same mindset that he created... 16 candles it might have felt uh rougher or not as immersive um as it does in ferris bueller where it just blends in perfectly yeah yeah it's it's kind of um proof that if you if you sit down across three years and make four movies you'll get really good at it yeah um all right so Speaking of, let's go overall and talk about these three films and uh, John Hughes's career in general. Right, and uh, definitely John Hughes is always thought of as uh, the high school movie director, which we can see for obvious reasons in all of these movies. And um, because of that, you get some interesting dynamics between uh, the kids and the adults in these movies, like you do in actual high school. Um, as they struggle to figure out these problems or, or these questions about their identities. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that in each of these films, whatever tensions the uh, younger characters, the kids have with each other, kind of disappear as soon as there's an adult antagonist. Less in 16 Candles, I think, but definitely in The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller, um, where we see that um, 
as soon as the principal or vice principal enters the picture, the kids are, you know, suddenly best friends. And it's this immediate, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. so we, we, um, it's this interesting layer of conflict that's understood. Like it doesn't have to be explained why, um, Hey, how come the kids were fighting two seconds ago, but now they seem to be looking out for each other, like Ferris and his sister or, um, or Molly Ringwald and Judd Nelson, um, in the breakfast club. We understand that the entrance of an adult character totally and immediately changes the dynamic with the younger characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like this just understood solidarity of being a teenager or being a kid that just kind of exists. And I think it's relatable because I remember scenarios like this um, from school. And I'm sure plenty of people have experienced something similar where maybe you don't all get along or maybe you don't all care about each other. But when it comes to authority figures, everyone knows who's, who's on whose side, um, you know, and in, in John Hughes movies, for sure, at least the, the high school administration is kind of quote the man. And, you know, as my, as much as the students might have problems with each other, they're all aligned against, uh, the, administration trying to punish them right um so that's that's just one of the themes that we see running through all of these and we've touched on uh several of these themes so there's the the knock against the administration in the schools this idea of um living up to expectations and um trying to figure out what those expectations are um and (laughs) there's one little quick one that I noticed is that apparently John Hughes really does not like the bus because in both Ferris Bueller's day off and 16 candles, when we see the bus, it's just this chaotic, um, mishmash of all of the kinds of people that you would not want to be around. And so so there's literally in 16 candles, um, when Molly Ringwald and her friend have to get on the bus, they just look at each other and say, the bus and then we (laughs) and then we get into it and it's like a circus in there um and that's where anthony michael hall's character come from so that's an immediate cue to uh to her perception of him yeah yeah and again i think that's one of those things that's aimed at um you know uh pseudo universal uh relatability among audiences um if you're aiming for that suburban high school demographic is uh, Almost everybody's dealt with the bus. Uh, maybe, I, th- I think it's something that was more pre- prevalent back in the 80s. I think it's maybe less pre- prevalent for kids to come on to school on the bus these days. Um, or it might just be uh, biased because of my own experiences. But right. It, it def- and, and it's definitely one of those things that's associated with 80s high schools. And that might be because it honestly was. And it might be because of John Hughes movies. <laughs> at this point um, because they inform my knowledge of the eighties almost completely because I wasn't there. Yeah. And I think that goes into um, this idea of the legacy of the movies, which we've also kind of touched on with how the films have aged. Um, I think 16 candles uh, 
has aged the least well out of the three of these. Um, True. And I think there are elements of these films that actually work better because of the age, like um, the floppy disks and 16 candles just are funny because it's so old and nobody cares about floppy disks anymore. But Anthony Michael Hall's character is willing to go to great lengths uh, just to get a couple (laughs) floppy disks from his friends. Um, Man, you gotta get those 200 megabytes of storage. Right. And then in Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, there are just elements that are kind of timeless. This either these struggles of trying to find your own identity um, through the pressures of peers and families and or these fantasies of running off and, uh, you know, escaping responsibility and having everything go perfectly. Yeah, yeah, definitely as... um individual films you you might see how some of them might not age super well um and a lot of that has to deal with how society has progressed over the past few decades but definitely as a body of work since it was and and i think this might be boosted because it was produced and directed all within such a short time frame of basically just the 80s um as a body of work it stands out as really strong um both in its lasting legacy and just the complexity of the themes it deals with, the how memorable each of the characters are, um, especially in like an ensemble film with like, like Breakfast Club, to have five characters who stick in the mind so well, um, except maybe Ali Sheedy's character, but that might be the point, right? Uh, <laughs> but but it's just it's it's really impressive that you think John Hughes and your mind immediately goes to the eighties. Um, whether you're someone like me who was never there. And so you go to, um, your completely crafted personal mind version of the eighties, or if you were someone who was there and experienced, um, similar things and you, you go back in time a little bit and remember what it was like. Yeah. And I think that there's, a lot of thematic elements and comedic elements that you can explore within this niche that John Hughes seems to have found himself in and which he kind of created films in that vein uh, throughout his career because we have, uh, you know, Weird Science and Pretty in Pink, um, which are dealing with the same kind of youthful characters. Uh, Home Alone goes even younger and we get uh, Kevin McAllister, Um, who's having to kind of figure out how to live on his own for a few days um, and and dealing with some of the same kinds of things um, and lots of other movies. So you could just kind of go through John Hughes through his list of films on IMDb and see a lot of these same themes of, you know, a younger person trying to figure out who they are and and how to interact with the people around them and... uh, and whether they need to live up to those expectations and whether they even can. Yeah. There's a lot of questions of identity. There's a lot of, um, misunderstandings between adults and kids. There's a lot of, um, emotional neglect, but he's definitely pretty consistent in his themes throughout his work. Um, that basically spoke to a generation of teenagers and, kind of through that power has stuck around to the point where it's getting referenced in movies still today. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about next week. 
Yeah, so next week we will be inviting guest of the show, Jason Harden, to talk about some anime. Um, it's more Japanese animation, but it'll be a little bit different than our last guest week with Miyazaki. Right, this week we're going to be dealing a lot of um, with a lot of sci-fi movies, uh, three of them to be exact. Our first one is 1988's Akira. Um, followed by 1995's Ghost in the Shell. This is the animated version, not the one with um, Scarlett Johansson, I yes. want to say. Yeah, Scarlett yes. Johansson. Scarlett Johansson. Um, but I'm sure then, that will come up in discussion. Oh, I'm sh- it's unavoidable. <laughs> um, we're going to have to talk about that. And then 2006's Paprika. And I'll be honest, I've only ever heard of one of these, but I am very excited to see them um i'm very excited to get jason's take on him he does a lot of uh movie review work on his own that is really great to watch um and and i'm excited to have another uh three-person conversation on this podcast it's gonna be really fun yeah and i'm excited to look at some more japanese animation and this time we're getting kind of the uh dark and gritty side of anime for sure and before we go we also have one other little announcement this week um, we are excited to say that the Filmlings now has its own website. Yeah, so our blog address is now thefilmlings.wordpress.com. Uh, soon we'll probably have a dedicated domain, but baby steps. Uh, so the, <laughs> yeah. the the filmlings.wordpress.com site will be a place to find all of our blog posts for the podcast. And also we will be publishing uh, just written articles about uh, various things that we're thinking about films throughout the week and stuff to uh, kind of fill in the gaps uh, here and there between podcast episodes. So those will be written by us um, whenever we get around to it. And also uh, we'll have some guest writers too. So be looking out for that. Right, right. We we watch much more than we actually talk about on this podcast. Um, and as I'm sure you all will find once you start thinking about um, movies in the same way we do, if you start thinking about movies in the same way we do, and we hope you do, um, it's kind of hard to turn that, that faucet off, that faucet of analysis. Um, and we just want to uh, create a new way for us to put out more content and interact with you guys. Right. And there's also, you know, every week things that once we finish recording, we're like, oh man, we totally forgot to mention that or, or whatever. So (laughs) this would be a good, (laughs) so this would be a good way to kind of trickle out those, those, uh, final thoughts on the films from each week. If those come up. Yeah. As it turns out, it's kind of hard to summarize a director's body of work in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, but we will do our darndest at each week. Yep. So that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to stuff that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog now at thefilmlings.wordpress.com. Talk to you next week. All right. See ya. <laughs>